Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, how colonialism, slavery, and war transformed medicine, the Celtic myths that shaped the way we think, investigating the story of the man who shot Ireland's most infamous informer the decline of the Dublin cattle market, and to end the show, we'll re-examine the unpublished writings of Jane Austen. Now, last week, we looked at the life and legacy of King Canute, and we found out how a Danish prince became the King of England. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the maladies of empire. Re-examining the foundations of modern medicine, a new book shows that the study of infectious disease depended crucially on the unrecognised contributions of non-consenting subjects, conscripted soldiers, enslaved people, and subjects of empire. Plantations, slave ships, and battlefields were the laboratories in which physicians came to understand the spread of disease. And this has now been explored in a new book, Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery and War Transformed Medicine. The book is published in hardback by Belknap Press. The author is Jim Downs. And Jim, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Over the past two years, we've had to learn so much about infectious diseases, uh, about epidemiology and about all of the things that... uh, you look at here in terms of the origins and talk to me about the thesis of the book and how that when we go back to the origins of of epidemiology how so much was so that there is this darker side to it in how in how these foundations were built on on very very bad foundations right so what happened was when epidemics blew up in london or in dublin or in any place in in Europe or even in the United States, doctors were often fatigued and dealing with the chaotic situation that these unexpected outbreaks caused. When the British uh, crown uh, continued and expanded its imperialist endeavors and when that coincided with the rise of the transatlantic slave trade, um, physicians were deployed throughout the world. And when they began to witness um, epidemic outbreaks, they certainly feared it as they did back in the homeland, back in the metropole, but they were able to gain what we talk about in epidemiological terms as a bird's eye view. And so when epidemic outbreaks happened on slave ships, uh, medical physician physicians were then able to observe the cause of the outbreak. They were able to theorize about possible ways to control it and possible ways to prevent it. And so what happens is by 1850, uh, doctors had been deployed throughout the empire in all parts of the world. They return to London and they create something called the London Epidemiological Society. It's the first ever use of the term epidemiology, and it's the first formal organization. And it grew out of imperialism. It grew out of the unexpected medical problems that happened on slave ships. And it even grew out of of war. Talk to me about the American Civil War and the development or the testing of smallpox vaccines, because that really is also another dark insight into, I suppose, a question of medical ethics. 
Right. So one of the things that's happening today right now when we when I we were thinking about it constantly is this question of vaccination. And when a smallpox, uh, a smallpox epidemic erupted during the American Civil War, uh, both the Union and the Confederate armies, the North and the South, struggled to get vaccine matter. And what I discovered in my research was which was quite haunting was that in a way to get more vaccine matter, what Southern physicians began to do is infect enslaved children and infect enslaved infants purposely with the virus so that their bodies would then produce the, the lymph, which could then be extracted um, and used as vaccine matter. And this is a sort of shocking history. I, I think it also happened during slavery because these doctors knew exactly what to do and they knew exactly how to do it. Um, but the archival records during slavery don't sort of yield this evidence. Um, but what I found in my research was that this was not an uncommon practice. Uh, in Europe, when epidemic outbreaks developed, especially around smallpox again, um, physicians purposely infected orphans. There's a case that I write about in the book of orphans who were purposely infected with smallpox and then were put on a boat and had to travel from Spain to Mexico um, in order for their bodies to then get um, to get the to, to sort of contract the virus. And when they arrive in Mexico, um, their bodies are sort of harvested again for the lymph in order to provide vaccine ma matter. So this is just the way in the 19th century that many um, physicians, what they would refer to as medical men, um, developed what they considered to be efficacious protocols to control smallpox epidemics. And what do you think explains this attitude? Is it a belief that there's a greater good at stake and therefore you can treat the human life before you cheaply and you can discard it, you can exploit it because you're you're serving a, a higher purpose. Sure. I mean, this is the period of slavery. This is when um, people's bodies are continually commodified for larger um, economic motivations. And this is also... Um, long before the advent of medical ethics, which really begins to sort of develop within the United States and within the UK in the mid 20th century. So these people are considered subjugated populations. They're they're disposable and they can be and, and they can be used as a way to advance the support and help of of the of the upper class. I mean, this is also it's a class issue, but it's also just another hallmark of the sort of effects of slavery and imperialism. And finally then, when you look at maybe even some of the, the stories that have become part of the, the, the medicine mythology, things like uh, the Crimean War and the work of Florence Nightingale, you also see their mm -hmm. uh, experiments in how diseases are transmitted and uh, there's also elements there that, that, that aren't part of the, the, the popular story. Right, right. So one of the things that happens is that Florence Nightingale has sort of been the subject of a lot of misogyny in many ways, because she was, in fact, a nurse who provided care and comfort for soldiers within the Crimean War. But she was also a brilliant statistician, and she was someone who was incredibly invested in trying to understand how unsanitary environments led to the spread of disease. So when she returns to England, she's actually trained by uh, Prince Albert's um, two 
tutor. She learns about statistics. She learns about how, um, you know, thinking about things about mortality rates, morbidity rates. She's thinking about how many people can stay in a hospital. She's thinking about the architecture of hospitals. And she becomes a sort of leading thinker during this period. In fact, when the British government expands its imperial reign throughout India, she becomes one of the chief architects that be, that that continues to investigate the health conditions in India, even though she's located back in London. But what this does is it actually disembodies knowledge production and it sort of becomes an, a leading sort of hallmark of how we understand epidemiology today, namely that we think of epidemiologists, they don't need to be in, they don't need to be on the ground. Some are, but many times they can just collect data and they can evaluate the data and develop protocols. Nightingale was one of the first to do that. And she was also, you know, a deeply problematic figure because she believed in sort of racial superiority. She believed she was she she looked down upon um, Indian people, but she was mostly invested in sort of thinking about how to um, create healthy environments to stop the spread of disease, which was paramount in the period before germ theory and microbiology. Well, Jim, thanks a million for joining us tonight to talk to us about these maladies of empire, a study of how colonialism, slavery and war transformed medicine. The book is published in hardback by Belknap Press. The author, Jim Dans. And Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. How do myths that were deeply embedded in the customs and beliefs of their original culture find themselves retold and reinterpreted across the world, centuries or even millennia later? Well, a new book reveals the lasting influence of Celtic mythology from medieval literature to the modern fantasy genre. The book is called The Celtic Myths That Shaped the Way We Think. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson Limited. The author is M.A. Williams. And Mark, you're very welcome to the show. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Can we talk about some of the figures, first of all, who appear in the book? Uh, Someone who I didn't really expect to see was King Arthur, because I see him really as this English uh, figure, but actually he has these Celtic origins. Yeah, absolutely. That's the paradox of Arthur, that Arthur is in origin an entirely Welsh, i.e. Celtic British figure, um, whose claim to fame as a legendary figure is that he drives the Anglo-Saxons away from the shores of Britain. Um, so it's a very peculiar cultural phenomenon that he ends up being taken on by the English as the, the centrepiece of the nearest thing that, that the English have to a national legend. And also then you have, uh, you see, the influence and the legacy of some of these figures, like someone who we covered on the show a few months ago is Fionn McCool. And ah. he was ah. someone who inspired Napoleon, uh, Gotha, Mendelssohn, like all these all these later figures uh, inspired by, by Fionn McCool. Yeah, the Fionn McCool stuff is extremely weird as well because it depends on an act of fraud in the 18th century when uh, a Scottish antiquarian and collector James Macpherson produced a series of poems which claimed to be in the mouth of um, Fionn McCool's son, Oisin, um, whom he called Ossian. And these poems, which were kind of long and, and gloomy, they're written in a, in a rhythmic prose rather than, than poetry as we know it, um, captured the imagination of half of Europe in the period. So uh, Napoleon had um, Ossian painted on the ceiling of his bedroom in the Palazzo Quirinale in Rome. Um, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, who went on to be president of the United States, 
uh, wanted to read the originals in, in Gaelic. Um, he would have had a hard time as no such originals existed. Is uh, one of the challenges here when you try and explore this subject is the fact that you don't have a single Celtic mythology, that so many of the stories like they're looking at uh, the, the, the 19th century, they get retold, they get rewritten, they get reimagined, and sometimes they're not even recognisable from the earlier versions. Absolutely, that's completely right. And there's two facets to this. The first is that um, we speak about Celtic mythology as though it were a single thing. Um, but in fact, there's Irish mythology and Welsh mythology, as well as traditions of the other Celtic countries. Um, and though they have things in common, they are emphatically not the same. And there are very few figures who straddle both. And um, so that is insufficiently recognised. And the second facet is that, as you say, sometimes 19th century and 20th century retellings and adaptations of Celtic mythology has, has ferried the story very, very far from their origins in the medieval texts. One of the things I've been trying to do in the book is to say that in each case, there is an earliest version. There is um, uh, the earliest version that survives, that's come down to us. And when we're talking about the mythology of Ireland or the mythology of Wales, we're talking about medieval literature on the whole. Yeah, there's pagan roots that that may go back a very long way. Um, But in every case, we're normally dealing with a text that's written down sometime in the Middle Ages. And then you have poets in later later centuries and our own W.B. Yeats here in Ireland, uh, you know, very much reinventing and retelling these these legends and myths as well. Yeah, I mean, Yeats was, uh, Yeats was a weird guy and had all sorts of um, strange esoteric fixations. So he's very much filtering his reading through his own preoccupations with the occult, um, with uh, romantic nationalism um, in all sorts of complex and interesting ways which means that um, quite often he has a genius for getting things poetically completely right, but mythologically completely wrong. So if you, uh, if you try and imbibe your sense of what Irish mythology, for example, is like from reading Yeats, you get a very, very distorted view. Talk to me about the, the cursed birdman, uh, Sweeney. Yeah, Sweeney is a Swidner in, in Middle Irish. He's, um, there's this amazing text from around the year 1200 called The, 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 uh, the Madness of Swidner, and um, Swivner is a king who insults St. Ronan, and you should never insult a saint. Um, so Ronan curses him that he's going to um, take on a, a, an avian form and become bird-like and hop from tree to tree. And we have this gorgeous text, which has been beautifully translated by Seamus Heaney um, and more recently by the poet Sean Hewitt, um, in which Sweeney goes around Ireland lamenting his, his terrible state. And in the end, he uh, meets another saint, Mo Ling, um, who uh, gives him the Eucharist and he dies and is redeemed. So he goes from being a bad guy who insults saints to a crazed wanderer with feathers all over his body, hopping from tree to tree, to a penitent um, who's received into heaven in the end. It's a beautifully romantic um, and yet tragic tale. And finally, when we talk about the influence of Celtic mythology on things in the present day, including the, the fantasy genre, when you watch programs or, or movies or read fantasy uh, novels, do you see the the origins back in Celtic mythology? Are you able to, to spot the Celtic DNA? Yes, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think you can. Um, there, there are some people who respond um, to the actual texture of the mythology in a really creative way. One of whom is the author Padraigulin, who's written a, an amazing children's novel called The Call, in which the, the fairies of Irish mythology are, are made into 
highly dangerous, manipulative and, and in fact terrifying figures. Um, and that's a very creative but also very rooted response to the material. And then you look at something else like um, Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy 2, The Golden Army from six or seven years ago, which took bits of Irish mythology, names like like Nuadhu and, and Balor, and remixed them into a version that was completely unrecognisable from anything that had gone before. Uh, there was a strange moment in the film in which two of the, the kind of fairy characters turned to each other and speak in perfect old Irish. And I sat there as a, as a, um, a specialist in, in, in that language and literature and thought, why would you bother producing perfect old Irish when you've not been faithful to the texture of the mythology in any other way? But everyone is very welcome to do whatever they like with mythology. It's the, it's the inheritance which belongs to everyone. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you tonight, Mark, about the Celtic myths that shape the way we think. That's the name of this new book by Mark Williams, published in hardback by Thames and Hudson. And Mark, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. We'll be okay. back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Patrick O'Donnell achieved the status of a national hero when he killed Ireland's most infamous informer James Carey on board a steamship off the coast of South Africa in 1883. But why did the quite-spoken labourer from the Donegal Gwaeltacht shoot the leading Fenian in the Phoenix Park murders? And why did the President of the United States of America and the French writer Victor Hugo plead that Patrick O'Donnell not be hanged for his crime? Well, a new book explores the story behind one of the most compelling murder stories in Irish history. It's called The Queen vs. Patrick O'Donnell, The Man Who Shot the Informer, James Carey. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Sean O'Coran, to the show tonight. Sean, you're very welcome. Thank you very much indeed, Patrick. A pleasure to be on Talking History. Well, let's give us the background to this. Who was Patrick O'Donnell? Who was James Carey? And how did their lives intersect then on board this steamship? Patrick O'Donnell was a quiet-spoken Donegal man uh, from Guidor, Donegal, Gwaeltacht. He was a native Irish speaker, spoke English as well, uh, uh, but couldn't read or write. He hadn't, never had the benefit of any formal education. He spent half his life um, in America. He went over as a child with his parents when he was about three or four years of age. But he spent three further periods of his life in America, working as a laborer, working in, in a sort of hard, back-breaking jobs there. He worked as a puddler, which is a, an unusual kind of a job. It's uh, working in the iron ore industry, smelting uh, pig iron, turning it into pliable metal for use in, in, the, in industry at that stage. He had a hard enough time during his, his life there, but um, he decided at one stage uh, in 1882 that America was played out. That's how he described it himself. He was going to go off to make his fortune in uh, South Africa, where the diamond mining industry had just begun to flourish there, the Kimberley mines, etc. So he was, he was attracted by that idea of going to South Africa and making his fortune there. Now, the other person in this story was a guy called James Power, or at least as far as Patrick O'Donnell is concerned, he was called James Power. When they both met, uh, they were heading towards South Africa, became the best of friends on this long sea journey, three-week journey from uh, London down to Cape Town in South Africa. And uh, the, the two men got on very well. Their families were traveling with them. Um, uh, Mr. Power was accompanied by his wife and their seven children. And uh, Patrick O'Donnell was accompanied by a young woman who was only 18 years of age. Now, he was 45 himself, but she was introduced as Mrs. O'Donnell. And the two couples traveling down to South Africa got on very well on this long journey. But later in South Africa, it transpired that, in fact, James 
power wasn't, wasn't actually his real name at all. He was, in fact, James Carey. And James Carey was a notorious Irishman at that stage. He was the leader of the Invincibles, who were responsible for the Phoenix Park murders, which happened in 1882, the previous year. And uh, he had turned state's evidence against his comrades. Five of them were hanged. Ten of them were jailed for long periods of time. And uh, the British authorities had a problem. They had to do something with uh, James Carey. So they sent him off in disguise as James Power, heading to a new life in South Africa. And that's how the two men met. And they, they met with what could be described as disastrous consequences for both. Both of them. Uh, it reminded me, in one sense, Patrick, of that, that great line from from the, the a poem written many many years later, uh, the, the the one from um, written by Thomas Hardy, the poem by Thomas Hardy, written many many years later about the Titanic, uh, when he talked about the, this great ship being bel- built in Belfast in the dockyard, and as the, sh- the smart ship grew in stature, grace, and hue, in shadowy, silent distance, grew the iceberg too. So for Patrick O'Donnell. James Carey was the iceberg and vice versa because their, their meeting caused both of them to end up dead. Now, you mentioned the young woman, the young lady who, uh, uh, who Patrick was travelling with. That's an, it was a complicated private life because he actually did have a wife who was back in Philadelphia and uh, the status of his companion kept kind of changing. That's certainly true, yeah. He was married. He was married to a woman from Gorta Hork and Donegal as well. They had no children, but they were really... They were, while they were married in the States, he seemed to be sort of wander off for long periods of time on jobs, you know, miles and miles away from Philadelphia where they were ba- based. They would come back together occasionally from time to time. And, uh, but in the end, he decided, obviously, that uh, marriage wasn't working and he decided to head off to South Africa on his own. While he was at home in Ireland planning his journey down to South Africa, he was in Derry just where the boat would actually travel from to bring him across to Liverpool and then from there down to London and on to Cape Town. He um, met this young woman from Guidor. She was only 18. She was working in service there and uh, he, uh, they got on quite well together apparently and he proposed to her that she should travel with him to South Africa, that they'd uh, get married somewhere along the, the route. He seems to have taken as gospel that, he, that his marriage was over and that he may have found some way of remarrying again and she decided to go with him, take her chances and it, it is an important part of the story because she was there on board the ship with him when he actually shot James Carey. She, was, she had her arm around his neck actually at the time and she was the closest person. So you'd imagine she could give evidence. Now if she were married to him uh, as they had originally suggested then she wouldn't be allowed to give evidence in court at that stage. Whereas he then said that actually that they weren't married, that she was his niece but then he changed the story again and said, no, no, they were actually, that she was actually effectively his girlfriend and that they were planning to marry, but they weren't actually married. And the difference between, that is an important issue for him because had she been able to give evidence in court, uh, then you would imagine she would have been able to help his side of the story. But as it turned out, she wasn't called to give evidence by the defence because I think they felt that, and it's pretty clear from the documentation, that they felt that if she had, they had called her to give evidence, in fact, what she might have said might have done his case more damage than good. So why did he kill Kerry? Because there are, there are some stories in his, in his defence that it was self-defence. Uh, others that uh, he was put up to it, that he was ordered to do it, that this was revenge for, for Kerry informing. Sifting through the kind of competing mythologies, what do you think really happened? Well, my own firm belief, having read a lot of the material from the various archives and all of the newspaper accounts and the court records and all of this sort of stuff, is that O'Donnell certainly believed when he shot James Carey 
that his own life was threatened in some sense. So there was an element of self-defence there. It may have stretched as far as manslaughter, I'm not sure, but it certainly wasn't murder. There's absolutely no compelling evidence to that as far as I'm concerned. I mean, my belief, my firm belief is that the two men had met, had befriended one another, uh, Patrick O'Donnell, thinking this man was actually called James Power, knowing nothing of his politics or knowing nothing that he was an informer. They'd become the best of friends. James Power convinced Patrick O'Donnell not to go mining in Cape Town, but to go up the coast, the other coast of Africa, the east coast of Africa, with him to Durban in Natal and to go working with him there. So he actually changed his life plan. O'Donnell changed his life plan because of his new friendship uh, with this man, only to discover by a fluke, by a pure chance, while they were in Cape Town, that, that actually this, this guy wasn't in fact James Power, he was really James Carey. And that came about because there was a, there were, uh, James Carey was in a pub, there was a bit of a scuffle or a fight in the pub, and a barman there noticed him, an Irish barman, and he had an old newspaper, an old copy of the Freeman's Journal, which had a supplement in it at the time, which had some sketches, and one of the sketches was of James Carey, and he recognised this guy in the bar as being James Carey. When that information was relayed to Patrick O'Donnell, he was absolutely shocked. He, was, he just couldn't believe that his new best friend was actually Ireland's most hated figure at that time, a person who was responsible, first of all, for the Phoenix Park murders, but then subsequently for the, uh, giving evidence against his own colleagues and having them hanged. He had, there was no love for him on either side of the debate, effectively, and he was so upset by that, and this is my, sort of my own conclusion, is that, that given the opportunity when a row broke out between the two men the next day, and they both had, had access to, gun, to a gun, then um, O'Donnell simply shot him, not out of any sort of um, act of revenge for giving evidence against his colleagues in the Phoenix Park murders or anything like that. I think it was simply that he was probably affronted that he had been misled for so long on the three-week journey by this new best friend, that he believed the story that they were going to be going to work in Durban together, and he had, all of a sudden he knew all of that was false. And that whatever row was there, a simple row just got worse very quickly. A gun was pulled, and uh, Kerry lay dead on the on the on the floor of the ship. And O'Donnell was arrested and put on trial for his life. Why did Chester Arthur, the American president, and and Victor Hugo, the French writer, intervene uh, on his behalf? Well, first of all, while O'Donnell was in America, he became an American citizen. Uh, he had spent basically 25 years there in various periods of time, and he succeeded in uh, taking out American citizenship, and that became an important point because that meant that the person on trial, when he was brought back to the old Bailey in London and put in trial there, that the person on trial was in fact an American citizen. So the the American administration, prompted very much so by the the Irish members of or the Irish people of Irish descent who were members of Congress and all of that, various politi- American politicians, uh, Irish American politicians, lobbied the the president and the president did act. He had the Secretary of State uh, attempt to have the, the hanging of O'Donnell postponed at least until the case could be re examined and see was there other evidence there. Victor Hugo came at it from a very different angle. He had become a pacifist and was very much against. Uh, capital punishment and he had uh, but he, uh, now capital punishment was quite common not alone in Britain but all over the place in fact there was a, a period if you consider uh, that, that same at the very, very same time there was uh, six different people hanged in Galway alone uh, by the, the hangman three of them from the Mantrasta murders three of them from another uh, murder that happened around the same time so there was it was common enough but the, the case of Patrick O'Donnell had come to the attention of Victor Hugo to such an extent that he actually personally telegra- telegrammed uh, Queen Victoria uh, asking her, pleading with her actually to, to spare O'Donnell's life 
and telling her that if she did so, that she would receive the, the love and admiration of a lot of people if she were to spare him. But there was no, there was no listening to, uh, to, to that advice uh, from either the American president or from Victor Hugo, and consequently uh, O'Donnell uh, was hanged. Well, it's an extraordinary story, and you tell it so well in the book. It's called The Queen versus Patrick O'Donnell, The Man Who Shot the Informer, James Carey. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author, Sean O'Coran. And Sean, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much indeed. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The Dublin cattle market was an institution in the Irish livestock sector in the 1950s. And a new book examines the market's final years between 1955 and 1973 and how its decline mirrored that of the traditional livestock fairs. The book is called... The Dublin Cattle Market's Decline, 1955-73, to A Story of Radical Change in the Irish Livestock Industry. It's part of the Maynooth Studies in Local History series, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Declan O'Brien, to the show tonight. Declan, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. So talk to me about the Dublin Cattle Market. Where was it located exactly? And just how significant was it in, in its heyday? Well, the Dublin Cat Market was located um, right at the intersection of Prussia Street and uh, North Circular Road off the Quays in um, the north side of Dublin City. And for more than 100 years, it was established in 1863 by an Act of Parliament. It was effectively the stock exchange for the Irish livestock industry. It was at the apex of the marketing system for cattle in the country. It set the prices at fails right throughout Ireland for the bones of 80 years. And it was really 90 years, in, in fact. And it, it was really the, um, the shop window for Irish cattle. And talk to me about the numbers involved, because they, it, we really are talking about uh, uh, quite incredible numbers of cattle and sheep being sold there every week. Yes, it, it, at its peak in the 1940s and 50s, it was, it was selling up to 5,000 cattle a week through the market and up to 8,000 sheep. Um, and what was really interesting, I suppose, the, the, the iconic... Um, the iconic images of the of the market, well, not actually of the market itself, but of people moving the cattle through the streets of Dublin from the market to the North Wall, because the market was intrinsically linked with Ireland's exports, live export of cattle through the from the eighteen sixties of from the eighteen sixties to the nineteen sixties for over a hundred years. And the importance of that trade in the um, 1940s and 50s particularly is that that trade generated about a third of the state's export earnings. So we were moving about or exporting about between 500 and 600,000 cattle every, every year. And the main um, market or the most influential market in that trade was the Dublin cattle market. And each week, you had up to 5,000 cattle were sold at the Precious Street sale and up to 8,000 sheep. Oh, really quite incredible. And uh, an, an interesting part of the story is the connections that the market developed with local people in, in the areas. And that was a, an important part of the story as well. 
Yeah, it was a real interface between urban and rural. So that you had this very rural business in an urban setting. So you have the people who moved the cattle through um, through North Dublin from the, the cattle market in Purcell Street to the docks and, in North Wall. Um, they were drovers and they were local um, local uh, Dublin natives, we'll say, although local Dublin residents from um, the Fibsbury area or that side of town. And they were... The people who worked in the market were amazed by how good these men were to turn and twist cattle, to what we'd say handle cattle, to to move cattle. And they, they, they could split out three, four, and five cattle from 30 cattle for a particular buyer. They were able to move the cattle through the streets with, with a dog and one man in front of them, one man behind them. They were just expert cattlemen. And also, the way the market worked, the cattle, when they came up from the country, were held in what were called cattle parks. These were 10 and 15 acre sites that ring the west of Dublin. They're now uh, technically part of Dublin City, so they'd be in Castlenock, Cabra, Fibsborough. And these rovers would go out to these cattle parks where the cattle were held for the three or four days before the sale moved them into the market, stole the cattle. The market itself would be opening at 5 o'clock in the morning, so that would be done the day before. They then moved the cattle after the sale, either to the docks or to the Dublin City Abattoir, which was across the road, or else onto factories around the town to be for, for the cattle to be slaughtered. So they were expert um, cattle traders. And Declan, what went wrong then? Why did it go into decline? And and why then did it close in 1973? Well, I suppose that, that ties it into the, the changes, the profound, the profound changes that were occurring in the Irish cattle industry. Um, in the late 1950s, um, the industry was effectively controlled by the cattle exporters. So there was a drive by the farm organisations and farmers to, to get more control of, the, of the, the, the cattle business. And they established cooperative maths. And this was from the late 1950s. And the difference between the maths and the Dublin market was that the Dublin market was controlled by the etiquette and by the traditions of the fair. So you had one man who, who was... Um, looking to buy cattle, and nobody else could interfere in that business until he was done with the potential buyer. So the farmer said, we need a different method to sell cattle. And they went for the cooperative mouth model where cattle came in and they were openly bid on by everybody at the sale. So it was a transparent way to to sell cattle. It was uh, farmer-friendly. And the, the mouths themselves were owned by the farmers. So when these mouths started gaining um, popularity in the 1960s, it effectively undermined the um, position of the, Dublin, of the Dublin cattle market. 
because no longer was it the premium market. Also, there was the increase in cattle processing in Ireland. The beef industry and beef processing industry really um, exploded and expanded in the 1960s. And we see in 1965, there was about 50,000 tonnes of beef was exported from Ireland. But by the end of the 1960s, that had gone to 170,000. So what we have is then a lot more cattle that were exported live to Britain and to Europe were now being processed at home. That took business out of the Dublin market as well. And as the numbers being sold in the Dublin market declined inexorably through the late 60s, the losses at the market were, went in the opposite direction. It was by the time it was closed in 1973, it was losing about £40,000 a year. And these costs were carried by the Dublin Corporation because they effectively controlled the market. So it was a combination of all these factors. Also, you had the butchers in the city used to buy all their cattle in the Dublin market. But they now... Um, were able to purchase their cattle from the meat factories around the city and from wholesale butchers. So they no longer frequented the market either. And it, it just lost its standing. And also, Dublin Corporation um, was rightly saying, why do we need a market inside in the middle of Dublin when we have mouths in towns ringing the city? So you had a mouth in, in Maynooth, in, in Nace, in Ashbourne. So they're saying, let them handle the sale of cattle and take it out of the city. So there was an absence, I think, as well, within the Dublin Corporation of a strategic vision for the, for, for the Dublin cattle market. Very good. Well, Declan, thanks a million for joining us tonight. The book is called The Dublin Cattle Market's Decline, 1955-73, to A Story of Radical Change in the Irish Livestock Industry. It's published as part of the Maynooth Studies in Local History series in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author is Declan O'Brien, and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Jane Austen's six novels, published towards the end of her short life, represent a body of work that is as brilliant as it is compact. But her earlier writings have routinely been dismissed as mere juvenilia, or stepping stones to later greatness. However, this is all challenged in a new book, Jane Austen, Early and Late. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. The author is Freya Johnston. And Freya, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Hello, great to speak to you. Can we talk about the Austen style? Does it develop over her life and career? Does it change? Are you able to to notice an evolution or are there elements of the genius in these earlier writings? I think stylistically there are definitely elements there right from the start. The earliest stories that we know about date from when she was about 11 or 12, so really quite early. Um, But they're already written in a very sophisticated and elegant way that you would, I think, already be able to identify with that of the older Jane Austen. So I think the thing that probably changes more than the style, perhaps, is the subject matter. The early works, are they have, you know, elements in them that aren't really what we associate with the mature Austen. 
Yeah, so let's talk about that, and because they're seen as perhaps maybe wilder writings, or and mm. and uh, having elements like uh, satire and so on. So, what were the what were the areas that she was focusing on in these early writings? Well, they're obviously written for laughs, um, you know, absolutely directly and for quick laughs in a way that's perhaps not so obvious in the mature fiction, although there are lots of funny things about those novels too. But these are generally very short pieces. Some of them are only about a page long. They're spoof fiction in which people uh, commit acts of murder. They steal things. There's a suicide. People elope, run away from their parents. Unlike the mature fiction, these stories don't usually end in marriage. So they're quite unusual in that respect. They're full of people behaving really badly, often teenagers behaving extremely badly. Um, And there's an element, I suppose, of um, not quite wish fulfillment, but certainly a kind of fantasy life that's rather different from what you find in the the sorts of fantasies of marriage in in the mature fiction. And I suppose it challenges the image that we have of her of being this kind of maybe proper, uh, you know, slightly dull figure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the sort of cliched view of Austen as this spinster aunt uh, who never admits anything improper into her mind, let alone into her fiction, all of that you you can see is very clearly challenged from the view of her as as a child and as a teenager. She's well aware of all sorts of things, including adultery. Uh, sexual impropriety, misconduct, crime, all those forms of behavior that conventionally it's argued she deliberately leaves out of her books. They're all there in in the early works. And once you realize that, you do start to notice in the published fiction that there's quite a lot of bitchiness and snide remarks and actually quite a lot of outrage at the position of women, which I think is also there in, in the early writing. There's quite a lot of anger about the position of women, um, you know, being forced to conform to certain kinds of behaviour. And when you, when you realise that about the early writing, I think you're, you're sort of more encouraged to notice it in the later work too. Jane Austen's bi- early biographers don't seem to have liked or respected these works, but Austen herself mm. seems to have valued them and returned to them on occasion. And they definitely seem to have influenced her, her later work. Yes, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, If she'd been ashamed of them, as has occasionally been claimed, then it would have been easy enough to destroy these works. They're, after all, three quite vulnerable manuscript notebooks. Um, if If she didn't want subsequent generations to read them or see them, she could have left directions in her will for them to be destroyed or just burnt them herself. Um, after all, we know that a lot of her correspondence was destroyed after her death by her sister. But they didn't get destroyed, these works. She she kept them in her lifetime. She went back to them. She went through them with her novel-writing nephew and niece, um, James and Anna, and encouraged them to, to participate in rewriting bits and pieces of this work. They were shared amongst her family and friends. So they're clearly not works that she was ashamed of. She may even have intended them at one stage for publication, uh, but they never got that far, at least not in her lifetime. Given that you've shown that there are these stylistic and thematic continuities between uh, the early works and the later works, uh, are the readers now going to go back to these earlier writings? Uh, Are they available in print or will some publisher decide to make them available and and say, like, here are new Austins for you to to, to enjoy? Or or are they difficult to find? No, they are available in in cheap editions from Penguin, from Oxford University Press, the classics. So, I mean, they they are available and you can get them online, actually, for free as well. I think a really good use for them, in fact, would be in schools. Um, Why not get teenagers to read them? Teenagers are often encouraged at school to read the full-length novels, but why not also get them to look at the teenage Austen herself and the kinds of things that she was writing about at their age? Um, 
So they are available, but I think there's been a long-term kind of reluctance to take them seriously, by which I don't mean read them straight, but actually think of them as worth reading in the same way that the novels are worth reading. They tell us all sorts of stuff about her as a writer and about attitudes to women and about, you know, the kind of social context in which she was writing. Um, and, and I think it would be a shame to leave them to one side. We've been encouraged to think of them as inferior to the later work because of the attitude that her own family had to them and because it took so long for them to be published. They weren't available in their entirety until the mid-20th century, but they are now really easy to get hold of, so I do encourage people to read them. You mentioned her family there, and because she died so young, she was in her early mm. 40s, her mm. family had a, a very important role to play in helping to shape her, her image in those years after the death. And Do you think that helped define her and define the status of these different types of writings? Oh, absolutely. I think it was overwhelmingly influential on on what happened to her reputation. Her first biographers were, well, her brother initially and then her nephew. Um, And the, the whole point of those early biographies was to cement the reputation that we now still really are, you know, grappling with or the, the one that we're still thinking of primarily as the Austin we know. That's to say that figure that I mentioned earlier of the, the spinster, housebound, um, elegantly, uh, you know, sort of confined only to domestic issues and not really knowing anything of bad things or the world outside. Uh, that image is, is, is what's conveyed primarily in those early works and then picked up subsequently by later biographers. And it's really only been challenged in the last few decades. So I think that, that families wish to safeguard the reputation of the novels themselves and to keep any whiff of impropriety or anything remotely that might threaten the status of those novels as properly uh, English and properly uh, excluding anything um, that a Victorian moralist might disapprove of. Um, that's that's absolutely been, been handed down from generation to generation and still has a, a strong effect on how people respond to Austen. It's also, it has to be said, been the tenor of a lot of film and TV adaptations of Austen too, which tend to tend to encourage that view of the England that she she depicts. Very good. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Freya, about the early and indeed the later works of Jane Austen. The book is called Jane Austen, Early and Late. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. The author, Freya Johnston. And Freya, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cahill, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll find out about the life and legacy of Moses Maimonides, the philosopher and physician to Saladin, who was considered one of the most influential scholars of the Middle Ages. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History History. on News Talk.